0: This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin.
1: We always tell people start small, make sure you can love the plant and deal with it and and, and get your feel on the harvest and the hand aspects of it before you go big.
0: Welcome everybody to a, the cutting edge, our podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I am Jason Fishbach, the agriculture agent Ashland, Bayfield counties, and uh, joined today by Carl Dooley. Carl,
2: yeah, thanks, Jason. I'm looking forward to this program on elderberries. Uh, my uh, my experience on elderberries is uh, eating elderberry jelly that my mother used to make and sneaking a little elderberry wine that she had now and then. So that. <laughs> But that's the extent, so I'm ready to learn today.
0: I used to grow uh, up by our farm here in Ashland and didn't have any success. I think the soils are too heavy, maybe. But I remember as a kid, it was all over in our woods outside uh, Shorewood, Minnesota, down in the Twin Cities. And we used to take the stems, I think this was elderberry, take the stems, and they're hollow. Yes. And you could make flutes and all kinds of cool stuff out of them. Um, but that's really the extent of my experience with it. But luckily, we have some pros here to join us today to talk about elderberry not only the plant and the production, but also uh, the efforts that are underway in the Midwest to develop an industry uh, around elderberry and elderberry flowers, it sounds like too. So um, let's just jump jump right into it. Chris Patton uh, with the Midwest Elderberry Cooperative. Chris, welcome. And I want to introduce yourself and how you're involved Thank with you, elderberries.
1: Jason. Yes, uh, I'm Chris Patton. If you've gone to the Moses Conference and come by the elderberry booth, River Hills Harvest with Terry Durham, you've probably met me. I've been there since uh, 2011 and that's where I first learned about elderberry when Terry Durham who's based south of Columbia Missouri was presenting on that and he's he's been there longer than I have and he is a a multi-decade farmer by experience and around 2000 he started looking at the elderberries uh, growing wild around the edges of his farm and says well what happens if I put them in the field And that coincided with interest from the University of Missouri to do some research and explore that for many of the same reasons uh, both of you uh, hosting here mentioned and finding alternative crops, perennial crops. And now elderberry is the number one uh, fruit crop of Missouri in uh, sales volume and dollar value. Number one over small fruits, strawberries, all that stuff? Yep, yep. They have uh, probably about 400 producing acres at least there in Missouri maybe 500 because we are adding acres every year. Um, And I, uh, besides uh, leading the co-op, which I started in September of uh, 2012, I market the River Hills Harvest brand of elderberry products uh, nationally, outside of Missouri. And so you'll find them, I've been in the co-ops there, the food co-ops in Wisconsin for a long time. Other stores, independents like Metcalf's or Fresh Time. And so, uh, and we're in about 500 retail stores across the country. Uh, Hy-Vee carries them too uh, in a lot of their stores. So um, I've got a, I originally uh, looked at elderberries from the standpoint of growing them, but soon realized that I was 62 at the time that I'd be better off working with developing the industry and partnering. And I did farm for six years. With Natasha Simeon, who will come on here a little bit later, and Paul Otten uh, was my mentor. Uh, with, again, a man with decades of experience in working with berries and currants and all kinds of things, and I owe a lot to him. And without him, uh, I might not have started the co-op, but he introduced me to Cooperative Development Services. So we've done a number of feasibility studies and had a number of grants. Uh, primarily in Minnesota. We did get some recently in Wisconsin for developing and growing and we're very excited about that and we also work closely with the Savannah Institute and uh, we just finished a a series of three uh, discussions between Terry and I that you can find on the Savannah Institute website uh, if you want more information after this podcast.
0: Great thanks Chris and Natasha can you tell us about yourself and how you're involved with elderberries?
3: Yeah, hey um, I'm Natasha Simeon and I farm at Regeneration Acres. I got involved with elderberries. Um, I was uh, volunteering at Natura Farms um, which was managed by the late Paul Otten and uh, while I really enjoyed vegetable production and digging potatoes and carrots out of the ground there's always been something really appealing to me about perennial crops because you, you have the plant and you have a relationship with the plant and it, it's something permanent, not so transient. And I always hated at the end of the season having to like pull up tomatoes. Like it feels like you've got this healthy plant you've been nurturing. And at the end of the season, you either pull it up or it, it dies from the frost. And um, perennials don't do that. They stick around and you have a relationship. And one of my favorite things about perennials is that if you have like with COVID, life kind of got busy with my off-farm job. And I kind of have ignored my field, but they're still there. Um, so that's something I find really, really, really appealing about perennials and elderberries because they are an improved variety of a native crop. Um, you don't have to sit and baby them. And and I appreciate that in my life. Um, so I worked with Paul. Um, and I learned about soils. And I learned about perennial crops. And I learned about human health and elderberries. Um, And now my primary focus is uh, propagation for nursery stock. Um, But I also, it's amazing because of the work Chris has done. It's amazing how people went from asking me, what are elderberries? To they hear the word elderberries and their eyes just perk up and their ears perk up. And they're like, I want some, get me some, make sure you reserve some for me. Um, So it's just kind of amazing what's happened in the industry in the last couple of years or a few years.
0: So tell us about... um... Elderberries, the plant, how they grow, are they trees, are they shrubs? Uh, talk and talk about sort of from the beginning uh, of planting on up to harvest, how you manage these things, what to look for. So, um, I don't know, Natasha, you wanna start?
3: Sure, um, so as I mentioned, elderberries are native, so they don't really need special bathing and pampering. They really appreciate having good soil. Um, a lot of people have the notion that they like like to have their feet wet um, and the reality is they, they can grow near water, but they don't like to actually be in water. It's not, that's not their natural habitat. If you see elderberries, you'll see them on, on creek beds and on roadsides, but they're not down in the bottom. They're on the side. Um, so when people call and ask me, what's the best place to grow elderberries, I tell them full sun is best because you get the best berry production like any other berry, um, but they can handle part shade. You're just not going to get as, as good of a, a crop um, or volume wise. Um, and they love, they love the ideal soil that every plant loves, but they can tolerate other soils as well. They don't like it too sandy, they don't like it too clay. Um, when you get them, you can start them with cuttings where it's just a, a dormant hardwood cutting that has what they're called the nodes. Um, and so the, the, the bottom node becomes the roots, the top node becomes the leaves and stems. Uh, you can also start them as started plants the most important thing when you're planting elderberries is that first season and the first couple seasons, make sure they're watered and make sure that they're kept weed free and that lets them get their feet under them. And once they have their feet under them, they will reward you for years and years and years to come. And in fact, if you do nothing, once they're established, you will end up with an elderberry forest. Like they will literally outcompete everything. You won't have alleys. You'll just have this huge elderberry forest. Um, so, Natasha, the, so,
0: the cuttings are, though, I'm familiar somewhat with, like, willow cuttings or dogwood. Uh, how long should they be? What's the, sort of the minimum, maximum diameter? Do they need to be, you know, vegetative New Year sprouts, or can they be from second-year wood, or or what kind of cuttings work?
3: So, um, they, elderberries, in, in our climate in Upper Midwest, the best thing, once they're established after the second season, um, the best thing to do is actually cut them down to the ground um, because you get the most... Uh, the most fruit on that first year's growth and so if you want to vegetatively propagate them the thing to do is they're going to go dormant in the fall and then in late winter well well basically i do it when i can get out in the field without the snow going into my like you know i, I wear my snow boots so high and i don't want the snow going into me and getting you wet um so while they're dormant you go out and take the cuttings the best size is about pencil size um too small and they don't do as well too big and you're just putting too much energy into cutting um, the stems and so about the width of a pencil and you want it to have uh, at least two nodes. And so you have the, the bottom node is the one that differentiates into roots and the top nodes differentiates into leaves and stems. Um, you can actually propagate them sideways where instead of growing them up and down in the media, you turn them sideways. And so some people have done that um, where you just have the, they take the whole stem and lay it sideways and then every single node differentiates into an individual plant. The challenge with that is if you're doing it in the ground, just make sure you keep up on the weeds so that the weeds don't overtake it. And once, like I said, once they're like, you give them water or you make sure they have water, make sure they're kept weeded and they get planted. We put the rows in between rows. I would say at least 10 feet more if you're, if you've got the space because once your plants become established, it kind of feels like a, like a jungle. And when you're out harvesting and the plants are full size, it's really hard. Like at, at Natura, the plants were planted. I think they were nine feet on center, and you feel like you're in the middle of a, like a Amazon jungle trying to harvest. Um, so, so how, how tall the, will they
0: get when they're at maturity?
3: Different cultivars get different heights. Um, the the shorter ones get about seven, eight feet, and the taller ones get about twelve feet. Oh, um, okay. So there's kind of a variety there, but that's kind of the range that they get.
2: All right first year of, of uh, maintaining weed-free. Are you doing that through mulching mainly or? Yeah.
3: The best way is mulching and mowing um, and just keeping the weeds down so that they're getting their roots under them. And okay. they're multi-stem. So each plant doesn't just have one. I mean, there's a primocane, a main thing. But um, once they get established, each plant will end up having, I don't know, like eight to 10, 15 stems on the plant.
1: Some of your folks might think, well, I can just go grab out of the wild because they are all over the place. You know, we've always encouraged people to do that because they're terribly understudied. I've got uh, four different wild ones in my yard that I uh, secured from along Minnehaha Creek in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're all a little different. And I I talk about them in some of the presentations uh, that you can find. Um, in the on the Midwest elderberry cooperative website and actually that website now is three websites there's so much material there they're all linked together but one focuses on growing another on the health benefit research and then the other is primarily uh, targeted to the many people that come looking to buy elderberry ingredients uh, but it has summaries on the, on the health and growth. so uh, the, the problem with uh, most of the wild ones do not bear fruit on the first year cane and so this makes it much more labor-intensive and difficult for management and it could work in some of the northern areas uh, where the seasons are shorter if someone's focused on flower production as opposed to berries because generally the wild ones that I have in my yard also do not ripen as evenly as the, the cultivars that were tested at the University of Missouri and that's a big thing and that's probably an area at some point where we get, uh, I know um, Don Wise, the University of Minnesota wants to, you know, find the genes so that we can ripen those things evenly, which would make a huge difference. And then the, the berries do differ in size, um, ingredient composition, sweetness, you know, acidity, all of that. And we really don't know. We don't know how much of that is the variation in the genetics, how much of it is soil related. And, and so these are all factors involved Uh, And as far as what Natasha was saying, you've got to mow because they spread like raspberries. And so, you know, we usually have a mixture of of, uh, legumes and native grasses in between the aisles and and you want to keep them mowed or they do take over, they spread. Mm -hmm. And we've grown more to favor those uh, uh, cultivars that tend to be more upright as well for that reason, uh, because some of them tend to be a little bit more... uh, wavy dancy bowing and that gets in the way of mowing a lot more quickly and then they get it tangled and we also get in the issues of, of pest control that way too but um so, and some Chris, growers so- do use matting and plastic to control the weeds the first year but you you have to have something that's going to decompose or you're going to have to pull it off because of the way the plant spreads. Got it. So
0: on the cultivar uh, side um are there particular cultivars that are kind of rising to the top that most growers grow? Is, is the market favoring a particular cultivar, cultivar over and Well
1: the three most favored cultivars right now are Ranch, Bob Gordon, and Adams. And elderberries like tomatoes are determinate and indeterminate. And the determinate meaning they they uh, bloom and bury once, indeterminate they keep blooming. So Adams is an indeterminate, ranch and Bob Gordon are determinants. Um, and we, people like growing ranch and Bob Gordon um, because ranch is usually a couple weeks earlier. So it splits a little bit on the level, I'm sorry, on the labor and when it comes harvest time. And that's really important. Uh, I've talked to a number of, of folks growing corn and soybeans about growing elderberry as a crop, for instance. And one of the things they've got to understand is that there is still a huge amount of hand labor involved in this. And the technology is not there on elderberry yet, it's all in development. We do have uh, mechanical assistance on bestemming the berries because uh, your buyers are going to want those berries uh, pretty much all right and not the green and unripe ones and without much, if any, stems. And so that's. Uh, Terry developed a destemmer that works so we could commercialize the berry production and produce a retail brand. We have some other growers that are working on different destemmer models um, and with their different ideas, but we don't have a large volume uh, destemmer available yet. Uh, I just got a USDA grant um, for a VAPG planning grant and. Uh, that Cooperative Development Services is, is managing. And we've got participation with folks in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And we'll be looking at uh, the development of, of production hubs. And part of that is the improved technology on the crop handling from the harvest to, to actually frozen bulk storage. Got it. So those uh, <clears throat> favored cultivars right now, how far
0: north are they being grown?
1: Well, they'll grow all the way into Canada the key is is will you get a crop
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so uh, and this is where if you don't cut them all the way down you're going to get a, uh, flowers and berries a couple weeks earlier than if you do even on those same cultivars but you're not going to have the same evenness of ripening um, and that's a, that's a factor because whenever you prune a bush even within that bush your cymes uh, or your bunch of berries aren't going to harvest or, or ripen at the same time and um, uh, so I, and the ones in my yard I'll go and I'll pick a third forty percent of the cymes, and then I'll go back pick the other half and then the other half and that's that's just even on the sign not even considering the aspects of of the berry ripening evenness within the sign got it
0: um, so let Let me circle back here to Natasha, um, back to the kind of production sequence. So uh, they put uh, cuttings in the ground or rooted plants, perhaps, keep the weeds down the first year. Um, And then it's cut back in the fall or early spring, I take it? And then...
3: Yeah, actually, the first two seasons, you don't want to cut them back. um,
0: Okay, so two years, you just let them go.
3: Yep, you let them go. And I tell people, I don't know if everybody does it, but I tell people if you really want to, if you want to play, if you're playing long game, those first two years you pick off those flowers as soon as they start developing because you want that plant putting all of its energy into root production. And so for those first two seasons, and it's pretty simple when the, when the flowers first form, you can just take your fingers and roll them and just kind of roll them right off. But um, so it's a little tedious, but if you do it, you're rewarded by better roots and um, elderberries have amazing root systems. Once they have their roots under them, you are never moving that plant. Like they are long ropey roots that, um, I tell people if you ever get an elderberry field and change your mind, your elderberry field will haunt you because any, those roots that you leave in the ground will come up. And unless you're mowing them, you will have an elderberry field again.
0: Got it. Okay. So it's gone two years now, my first production year. What, what should I be doing?
3: Um, (laughs) Waiting for them to ripen and being really nice to all your friends and neighbors so that (laughs) when they ripen, you have a whole gaggle of people to help you. Um, because as Chris mentioned there is um, it is not mechanized you're out there we use apple picking bags and uh, ha- little scissors and I try and gather as many people as possible or bribe my kids to go in the field and we, we you go through the field and you cut off the berries and put them into the bins and uh, so it's not only you hand harvesting that the challenge is you have got to get those plants or those those berries um, processed we you have to uh Destem stem them clean them rinse them rinse them and while, while you're cleaning you're actually sorting out the, the unripe berries the slugs the spiders all the other things when you when you put them in the water um, the ripe berries sink basically everything else floats and so you have to skim it and then you rinse it and uh, strain it and you want to package it and get it in the freezer and you want to do that pretty quick because as soon as those berries aren't on that plant they're 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 losing like you, you you need to get them on frozen as quick as you can okay. um, are they, to preserve are they the integrity
0: a firm berry like an aronia or they go splat like a raspberry
3: Is when they're ripe days- they're yeah they're kind of even, like they don't get as soft as a raspberry but when they're ripe um they have a they have a, a firm skin but you, you you can't be too rough on them because they can squish um the, the biggest challenge and maybe i'm segwaying to something else we're not going to yet but with spotted wing drosophila um that's really been challenging because usually when they're ripe, there's there's a firmness to them that you're okay. But when, when they have spotted ring drosophila, you, even when you go to pick them, um, the fruit is already like shriveled, like they've already sucked the juice out and your, your hands get totally purple because the spotted ring drosophila have been feasting on your fruit before you get there.
2: So the skin isn't real tough then like the aronia and some others that no. really doesn't in fact, how? What are the size of these berries? I know they vary. What's kind of an average
1: size? I haven't seen them since I was a little kid. So,
3: um, that's hard, Chris. What's a, what's something that's well? The right I,
1: size? I I say I I can put six of them on my fingernail.
3: There, that's good.
1: Okay, so they're they pretty. Are, they are, okay. and like like Natasha said, you know they are uh, when they're properly ripe. They're dusky dark. They aren't shiny dark. And uh, they're all a little different in how black versus how red they are when they're ripe. Usually um, I would wait till I started to see some falling off. Uh, and then uh, the Asian fruit fly, the spotted wing drosophila, is the biggest problem. Japanese beetle can also be a problem. Uh, we've got a new grower, this is his third year. He's in Western uh, Wisconsin. He was planning on having a few hundred pounds and he said the deer ate it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So. You know, depending on where you are, deer fencing is is an issue. Sometimes birds, at Natura Farm, where where Natasha and I worked together with Paul, we didn't have those issues so much. I mean, you had some birds around the edges, but, you know, most of the crop was good. And it's it's like any kind of berry crop. Uh, if you've got, you know, some bird droppings, or if you've got uh, a sign that's been infested with the Drosophila, you, you you don't pick those. You, you get rid of them. Um, um, so, Chris?
0: You yep. you said the four letter word uh, <clears throat> in the world of perennial woody crops, deer. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, in hazelnuts, it's interesting because we kind of, oh, sometimes we like to lessen the impact of deer, maybe because we're trying to promote the crop. But let's let's just get right down to brass tacks. How big of a problem are deer? Right? Uh, will they will they chew these things to the ground and wipe you out in the first or second year if you don't do something? Or is it really? they're nibbling and it does actually depend on deer density.
1: It it really depends on your deer pressure. Elderberry is not their favorite food, not like a raspberry or an apple. And uh, so, you know, for most of our growers, and and this is, I mean, I've got members from coast to coast now. And uh, the stories I get is that, you know, the deer will nibble around the edges, they'll eat a little bit here and there. but you get some areas where the deer pressure is high and it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the same with birds. I mean, if you're along a flyway of, of, of a species of bird that identifies with feasting on those berries, you're gonna need bird netting. You know, we've got a farmer in Winona and, and he's, he has to have the whole thing netted and the whole thing fenced. Fenced against the deer netted against the birds. You know. So it varies. I mean, a lot of folks down in Missouri, they get a permit where they can hunt deer out of season. And so as the barriers are getting right, they go out or they find friends to go out and hunt around the area and the deer aren't stupid. They get away from your fields. But most places need some kind of fencing and there's a lot of different approaches to that from filament and electric wire to the full-fledged deer fencing. And I know Minnesota has a, a deer fence uh, program I'm uh, not sure about Wisconsin, but um, you know, that is something that is very determined by the areas, just like your soil.
0: So you've harvested, uh, now what? Do you let, let it grow the rest of the year and then cut it in the winter to the ground or, or are you doing some pruning post harvest or how does that work?
3: It depends. Um, I would encourage most people, um, and if they're not looking to do vegetative production, if they're not looking to take their own cuttings, the best time to, to prune them to the ground is once they've gone dormant in the late fall, um, just because uh, there are things like cane borer and uh, po- pests that can, and, and, and mites that can stay over winter. And so if, to, to reduce the number of those, the best thing to do is to do it in late fall. Once you know the plant's dormant, just go through and cut it to the ground. Um, people have done different experiments with, you know, do cut it 16 feet tall or 16 inches tall, 12 inches tall. But really, overall, except for one cultivar, Johns, that really not a lot of people are growing because of its challenges—the extra labor. The best thing to do is basically get them within a couple, like three, three inches of the ground, and cut them down, um, and just remove those canes, and then just let them sleep through the winter, and then come spring, they'll come up and do their thing.
1: Got it. So
2: winter hardiness—not uh, too. You don't have to mulch them or anything in the far north.
3: Nope. No, No, native, I mean
1: they're native. They're native, they're not gonna give you a problem. And like Natasha said, if you don't cut it closer to the ground like that, the, the canes that come up are not as strong and they're more prone to wind damage. So you want, you want like four inches or lower from the ground.
0: You said there's 400 acres in Missouri. And I'm thinking a couple of things. One, 400 acres of hand harvested fruit. Boy, with that model, what's the ceiling? Um, and then also from you know any new crop, <clears throat> what do you think is the ceiling for elderberry? Uh, and well, okay, so, and...
1: so when I started this, um, and there's presentations on that going back, uh, the market for elderberry, if, if 1% of our population would use some elderberry more than once a year, we need 22,500 acres of cultivated elderberry, and we probably only have a little over 1,000 acres right now. Uh, I can tell you right now that demand far exceeds supply, especially with COVID, we sold out of all available elderberry, but whether it be bulk frozen or the River Hills Harvest products or most of our growers and members make their own products. They were, everyone was sold out by March, if, if not the first week in April. And, and so right now, I mean, even when I go to my national distributor, Katie, they said, you do not need to advertise this year. We won't require that as part of your marketing because if you can just get product in the stores, it'll be gone and i uh, know you don't need to do a sale of 15% only go 10% and i'm only doing one sale instead they normally want you to do four sales a year but this is this is the market for elderberry it is insatiable at this point i am trying to juggle orders and production availability and uh, it's it's a it's a big challenge
0: so what are what are the main products that elderberry somebody mentioned uh, harvesting both flowers, but then of course the berries.
1: Yes, and and just on the flowers, we do suggest that people harvest flowers and sell them up to three or four feet above the ground, because those berries generally don't set as well anyway. And it will put more of the energy towards the top. And the top is further from the ground, which you want and is for pest management, especially the SWD, the the Asian fruit fly. And uh, Paul Otten was a big, uh, fan of having your, your rows a little more narrow, more like three feet wide so that you got lots of sun and air moving through those uh, that mass of, of the bushes in order to keep the pest issues down and then other kinds of, of uh, uh, natural um, uh, pest and disease control. Just the sun and air is really good.
0: Flowers, they're picking just to get rid of them, or, or are they actually being sold well, either? Well, there is a big market
1: or... for flowers, okay? And uh, that could be fresh, frozen, or dried flowers. Um, and, and I'm paying $25 a pound for fr- dried flowers, and I can't get enough. Uh, I have a lot of breweries that use them. They can be used instead of hops. Uh, huh. Most people will, will take the flowers, and you can do fresh, frozen, or dried flowers, make a syrup from them, and with the syrup, you can add that to ciders. You can do liqueurs with them. I and I, I, you know, St. Paul 11 Wells Distillery does an elderflower liqueur with it. I've got breweries all across the country that want it, and I've got about a, a dozen small herbal infusion companies that make herbal infusions with the flowers, and some are in Wisconsin.
0: Tell us more about the co op in terms of how it's structured. In terms of if I'm a, a grower with 10 plants, can I join? If I'm a grower with a thousand. Uh, acres can I join you know how, how do you balance well I things? do I do have
1: everything spelled out on the membership page but I'll just go over it briefly here we we have a 308b co-op uh, Dave Swanson's our attorney Dorsey and Whitney it's the best organized co-op out there it's an open co-op I work with growers if their members are not I've not been too hard-nosed or anxious or overly trying to get people to join uh, because I want to make sure that it's going to work for them most of our members at this point are smaller producers who also make their own products. And so they are strictly a voting member. We also have a distribution rights level. Uh, these are for folks who want to uh, you know, just grow commercially and have the co-op sell it and make ingredients through the co-op. Uh, I've got uh, more growers interested in that. And as we get the technology together, that will be possible. We're, we're looking at, for instance, putting in uh, over hundred acres of production just west of the Twin Cities around the Montrose Buffalo area. And uh, that's in conjunction with a, a Veterans Farming Initiative and, and some other neighboring farms. Uh, it's a nonprofit. They work with veterans, disabled veterans. And so we're, we're planning to put um, disabled veterans and veterans to work in, in processing, producing elderberry and, and uh, doing some basic ingredients. That's going to be part of that uh, USDA planning grant study that I mentioned.
0: Got it. How about the hand harvest issue? Is this is this a sustainable option, or or is there work to develop? Well, the the hand
1: harvesting aspect of it is um, the lesser of the two big problems. The destemming is the biggest problem. I mean, those cymes—if you can get them in the sun, as Natasha said, with the full sun, you can actually snap off those cymes if they're evenly ripe, uh, and that speeds that up. Um, if some of them, part of the sign, they're like five fingers and, and the whole finger will be ripe, but maybe two of the five are ripe and you got to come back later for the other three or something. And that's where you need the, the clippers or scissors or something like that. But uh, that's, that requires labor, but also like for the flowers requires labor. I had a big grower in Iowa that couldn't get me any flowers this year because of the labor issue. Probably COVID was a factor in that. Uh, but the destemming is the big thing because right now we have batch destemming. We can do between three to five hundred pounds an hour with a crew of about three or four people, um, and and that would be pickers and destemmers, and uh, that's the minimum you want to be looking at. A lot of times, Natasha and I were doing it ourselves, and really, it feels a lot better if you got four or five or six yes. people up there. <laughs>
3: And that is the bottleneck. The destemming is every single time. I mean, you could have four people, you can have twenty people. Actually, it's even worse if you have all those people out picking. Um, the destemming is the bottleneck in the whole operation, and that's the thing. Thankfully, there's some really cool tinkerers and engineers out there working on it. Because once that, once somebody figures out how to make de-stemming go faster, it's gonna. I think it's gonna really revolutionize the harvesting.
1: A little bit here. You mentioned about Aroni a few times. And The two berries have a, a close nutritive profile. Aronia is easier to grow. It's much harder to sell and that's because of its bitterness. Elderberry is a sweet neutral. It actually has a positive bricks about half the sweetness of a grape and that makes it much more desirable. It also has a longer cultural tradition and much higher demand. Although Aronia is a great berry uh, we have a lot of people who have been growing aronia that are moving into elderberry, and uh, either in and in part. I, I had a really good conversation with the largest aronia grower in Iowa a couple weeks back. So um, that's, that's what I want to say about that, and I think in the future also we're looking at uh, the possibility of developing ingredients, blending things like currants, aronia, and elderberry together. There's a lot of potential for those three perennial crops in in marketing. The demand is there. The key is uh, I worked for Pillsbury for five years and uh, three of those for international R&D and particularly haagen International. So I'm used to working with the ingredients and stuff like that. And it's like anything else. You've got to put it in a form that your manufacturers want. I've got 12 I've I've been to national trade shows four or five years in a row. I've got uh, over a dozen major brands that want to have elderberry flavors of some form or another. I just cannot promise the production for them to do product development.
2: Natasha, when's normal harvest time for you then? You
1: said you're a little later than other, like, Twin Cities.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, um, this year is later than normal. Uh, My berries right now are just starting to get purple. So... Like when I drive in the cities, you know, there's not elderberry fields yet, right? Like you don't drive by elderberry fields, but all the different uh, wild elderberries that I see on the roadside, I'm about two to three weeks behind what I see in the cities.
2: So you'll be looking at harvest mid to late September then?
3: Yep. Yep. And the different cultivars um, ripen at different times. The ranch ripens a little earlier than the other ones. And like Chris said, even within, so each cultivar has its, it like ripens at a little bit different time. Um, and then even within that same sign, the sign is the, the clump of berries. Mm-hmm. There's these five fingers. And so if you're being, if you're being time efficient, you just harvest it and you lose some, you lose some crop because you have unripe berries. If you're going for maximum harvest, you come through with a scissors and you cut each of those ones, just like strawberries or tomatoes, like the, you know, they ripen in order and you can, you can watch the order. So you come through and, and grab that, that finger off and then come back later and get the next one. Um, so the good thing is it's not something, it's not a crop where you have to do it all in the same weekend. You can, you can kind of space it out a little bit, which is good because you have to, you have to get those people to come help you. And again, it's not the, it's not the harvesting, it's the once, you, once it's harvested, getting it ready for the freezer, that's the hard part. Now, I, I do have this to say, if a person's interested in growing elderberries and they're not looking to do it uh, commercially or retail, Um, My uncle laughed at me, like after the first year I was part of it and I was telling him all this work we did. My uncle just laughed at me and he's like, because he's been, he's forged for like decades and he's like, this is what you do. He said, you have your chest freezers and he said, you go harvest your elderberries and you stick them in a plastic bag and you like, you harvest the whole sign, you stick it in a plastic bag, throw it in the freezer. And then later on, when you have time, you take it out of the freezer and kind of like tap it a little and the berries fall off the sign.
0: Okay. So the destemmer is this where like every farmer could have a destemmer, or is it still pretty centralized where you're shipping the whole sime to some processing
3: plant? You so you that? can't. The sime actually has to be processed on site um, because okay. that berry is perishable, and so that's the the part that Chris is trying to develop where there's hubs. Um, it would be that growers in a certain area could pick and then that very same day drive their drive their harvest to the to the hub where it gets destemmed and cleaned and cleaned and rinsed and and packed and thrown in a freezer. Yep. It's, it's that's a part where it's you know most people are, that are doing this don't want to invest you know I don't I don't know how much things cost I know it'd cost a whole lot to set up a whole processing facility to do this on a major scale there's a large cost involved in that. Um, and so that's the reason for the hub. And that's why like on a smaller scale, if a person just wants to have an acre or a few, like on ours, we don't have all of the tools um, because again, my, my main thrust isn't fruit production, but we just go out and harvest and, and, and do it without the distemmer. We have to hand, hand separate it and then get it rinsed and, and thrown in the freezer. So it's depending on what level person wants to get involved um, I think if somebody was like all in and they're like, hey, I want a thousand acres, then at that point, yeah, get yourself a, the freezer and get yourself all the supplies so that you can do it. And I, and I think that the industry is going to go that way. But in the meantime, um, it's kind of the hubs is what's what's in development.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, interesting because it's like almost sounds like an exact parallel track as the hazelnut world right now in the Midwest where we've got a lot of small growers doing everything by hand. And then we finally just got um, our processing incubator facility built so now people can bring all their hazelnuts to get uh sized and cracked and cleaned and everything so boy it'd be great to have something like that happening in wisconsin uh you know an elderberry processing
3: i would love that (laughs) because you need you need that infrastructure um or else like i said you're really just begging like like by the end of the season Nobody wants to answer my phone because they, they know like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, right. when I was you know look, like they, when I was focusing on berry production they're like oh no I know what she's doing she's calling because she wants me to come harvest
0: don't um, answer the phone right right <laughs>
2: Jason just for a second I'm wondering about the juice market I know I read a little bit about uh, the elderberry juice market is that an avenue that more growers are looking at uh, do you have to spend as much time destemming if you're juicing them right away or uh, how does that fit into the marketing process.
3: So what I first do is I take those frozen berries that are like, you know, ripe berries. Like as as much as I can get them to be just ripe berries, it's just ripe berries in that bucket. And I take them out, and what happens is when they thaw, a lot of the juice comes out on its own. So I put them in a colander, and and the juice comes out on its own. And that's so that is raw elderberry juice. So there's a market for that, um, Mm -hmm. in. Most of the time, consumers don't, like if I'm directly selling to people, they don't want raw elderberry juice. They want me to have made it into syrup or I call it a tonic because people get really confused when you say syrup. They're like, yes, there's a lot of education. So if you're in in the crunchy mama circle, they know exactly what you're saying when you say elderberry syrup. But in the general population, they're like, wow, that's really expensive. Yeah. They want to put on their pancakes. And they're like, I'm not going to spend all that money to put on my pancakes. And I'm like, you better not put it on your pancakes (laughs) because you're really going to offend me if you take all my work and throw it on a pancake. Um. So, the i had
2: pancakes. <laughs>
3: oh, I'm sure it's yummy, but, but it's just like I, it's so expensive. You'd have to like really be indulging yourself. Um, yeah, I make really I
2: good pancakes. So.
3: Well, there <laughs> yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you make yourself some really good buckwheat, and it's it'd be like a great meal. Um. So in the the industry that Chris is dealing with, um, they want they want raw juice because they're going to process it because most, most people, uh, there's a concern out there that raw elderberry juice can have some glucosinides in it and it can upset people's stomach. And, you know, there's, I take it, I will drink it raw just because I don't want to heat it and break down enzymes, but I know for it to be sold or, you know, when I, when I'm going to sell it to people, um, I'll have heat treated it because in making it into the syrup or the tonic, like I call it. Um, so you take your berries out of the freezer, you let that raw juice come out. So you get a certain percentage of juice. A large percentage of the juice comes out just from being frozen and the cell walls breaking. So that you've got that juice. Then you can take, then I take my berries that are left over after that juice has come out, and I put them in a steam juicer. And basically, what a steam juicer is, it's it's from Europe. Um, steam rises up and falls, it hits the lid and falls down and pulls the rest of that juice out. And so then that's the secondary juice. Um, but either way, whether it's the steam juice, if it's, if I use the steam juicer, then that juice is already warm and I bring the temperature down to the point that I can add honey without denaturing the, the good enzymes in the honey. And, um, for the raw juice, I heat it up, same thing. I heat it up, get it to that point where it's, it's denatured the enzymes in the elderberry, because then that's not, that's going to break down the glucosinides and then let it cool, add the honey. And then I add in ginger, and cinnamon, Um, I'm blanking out right now, ginger and cinnamon basically are the the two things Um, and let it simmer for a while and then strain out those things. And that resulting product, so it's the elderberry juice, honey, ginger and cinnamon. That's what people call elderberry syrup or like I call it elderberry tonic so that people don't pour it on their pancakes. Um, And that's what people like when I sell directly to people or I give it to my friends and family, um, that's the product that people want is is the elderberry syrup.
0: Got it. So Chris mentioned that a lot of the co-op members can sell or sell products on their own too. Um, Do you get a sense where maybe the industry might go where we have, I sort of think of the cheese world, right? You could have some really big consolidated cheese businesses, or you can have all these farmstead creameries scattered across the countryside and have a thousand different kinds of cheese. Um, You think it's going to be both or some of that, or where do you think the industry will go here?
3: I think, I think it's going to be both of that plus a middle ground where um, th- th- it doesn't, there's not enough growers yet. The, what I love about the way that Chris set the co-op up is um, like some co-ops are set up that you have to contract with the co-op. You're not allowed to sell off by yourself. Right. Like You, you are yeah. beholden to the co-op, and that is not the business model or the model that Chris wanted to do at all. In fact, he encourages people to direct sell. Um, he just says hey can you can you commit a you know can you can you commit a certain per, you no know, a number of what you got so i we know how much the co-op is getting, but I think that it will be just kind of like what you said with the dairy where there will be these people who have you know moving not now but in in the in the future but there'll be large growers who are doing it wholesale very mechanized they 've got a lot of money into their infrastructure um because they're doing it on a large volume, and then there'll be the growers that um you know, they have this is. I don't know if hobby is the right word because it is a it's a business and it's a lot of work and there is profit to be made if you if you put the work in. Um, but there'll be people who do this on a local level.
0: Yeah, right. Um, what's the grower community like? Is there a besides the co-op? Is there a an association or, um, you know, particularly in Wisconsin? What does the scene look like right now?
3: You know, the co-op is really the. It is, I mean, I, Chris mentioned that the, the website kind of is because there's become such an interest. It's kind of broken into um, growing and health and, and then the, the berry and flower side. So really, it is, we're such a small community right now. Um, basically, Chris is the, the hub. Like, people, if people have questions, they go to Chris and Chris, Chris funnels them over on depending on what their question is. Um, mm-hmm. So I think as the industry grows there will probably end up being like chats and, and that type of thing. But we're just, the industry is small right now. And so the co-op has been essential for that kind of communication and relationship.
0: Yeah, got it. Um, here's a question for you that's super hard to answer, I know, but I'd like to ask it. So, you know, so many of these new crops, hazelnuts, aronia, currants, elderberry, you name it, it's all about trying to expand the palate of the American consumer. <laughs> you know, For example, when, up in Bayfield, we try to get folks to eat currants, but when they go to a pick-your-own-farm, you can pick blueberries or you can pick currants. Which one do you want? Well, they all choose uh, Americans the blueberries.
3: Americans? Blueberries.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what have you found that's been working in sort of your marketing messaging, and, and, and what are consumers responding to about these new crops, particularly elderberry, that, that they, they really like? So
3: I actually haven't had, to, I mean, in earlier years i i would educate people um i mean well if i ran into a russian or eastern european they were just like so excited and it actually was amazing like at natura there's black currants and there's elderberries and when those come ripe um the russians joke that they have the russian telegraph like like as soon as things are ripe the entire community is there because they love them and it's a part of the culture and it's not for americans most americans like like carl said they'll they'll say oh my mom made elderberry jam um, and elderberry pies, I don't have to, because of the work that Chris has done and Terry's done, I don't really have to educate people anymore because right now the supply is greater. No, the demand is greater than the supply. Um, because of, I think elderberries have, they do have a good flavor, but their main thing is the health benefits. And I was in the, uh, the natural foods, Valley Natural Foods co-op the other day, and I was shocked because they had kind of like a, a COVID end cap. And the elderberry products probably consisted of 30% of, you know, that echinacea and vitamin C. And there was elderberries taking up 30% of it. So I think the American market has caught on that elderberries are very healthy for you.
0: Well, we've got these, their bodies. these treasures, these wild native plants growing in our backyard that we've just ignored. Yeah. You know? Our best example yeah. of what we can do would be cranberries, right? We took those out of the wild yes. and into a crop, healthy crop. So. All right. Yeah. Um,
3: and they've really helped. Cranberries have really helped Wisconsin. I can't remember the, the oh. where they are in the ranking, but it's really helped yeah. Wisconsin's economy.
0: Absolutely. No doubt. Well, maybe we should wrap it up. We're a little after 11. Carl, do you have any last questions?
2: Or no, or I just comments? want to say thanks, Natasha. It was uh, interesting. I learned a little bit more about uh, elderberries, and, and uh, I'll, I won't pour them on my pancakes anymore. <laughs> yeah. <and, and>, <laughs>
0: Well, thanks, guys. Yes, thank you. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin Madison Division of Extension.